And I also want to give a special shout out to those mothers who are at South Bend City Church for the first time trying to figure out if your kids have joined a cult. <laughs> That's wise. I, I encourage that kind of exploration. We're really glad you're here. Um, but now we're going to turn from mothers to brothers because of where we are in the scriptures as a community. We've been working through the book of Genesis. So if you've been with us for a bit, you know these themes that we've hit on so far. We open the very, very first pages of the scripture, and we see this incredible, energized celebration of the world. God creating this beautiful world out of divine harmony and saying again and again, it is good, it is good, it is good. God calling you and me to bear the image of God in the world. And then when we, when we enter into that work, the whole thing gets an upgrade from good to very good. And then we look to Jesus to learn what it looks like to bear that image for all the ways that we've stumbled, fallen, and broken that image in our lives. We look and we see Jesus, the image of God, teaching us to keep getting our hands on the raw materials of the world and making something beautiful out of it. And then last week we looked at Adam and Eve in the garden and this uh, peculiar story of a forbidden fruit and a blessing and a command and a, and a prohibition and a calling and today we're going to keep that story going. We're going to look at where a couple of brothers hit the scene. Now it's interesting that in the book of Genesis, as soon as brothers are introduced, murder is introduced. Which makes sense to me because I have a brother. <laughs> I don't think he's here today. Uh, this is not fair because he's not in the room. But I'll tell the story about my end of it. You know, like One time, I remember elementary school, my brother and I are over at a friend's house in the basement playing. And they have some good toys. They have this massive He-Man sword. It's bigger than me. And we're just kind of running around playing sword fights and all that. And I, I honestly, guys, there's no provocation. Nothing happens. My brother doesn't do anything to me, doesn't say anything to me. But just out of nowhere, you know, I get seized with this fratricidal energy, right? And he's standing there, his back to me. And I just remember taking that thing and swinging like Babe Ruth for the fences, right? And just walloping him as hard as I could. And like, like I remember, as soon as it happened, I don't know why I did that, but he's my brother, you know? <laughs> this is what brothers do. So the brothers get introduced in the book of Genesis. Murder gets introduced in the book of Genesis. And I want to show you uh, what's going on here. Um, if you've got those programs that we handed you, you'll see the scriptures are in there. And I'm going to pick up, we're in chapter 4 today, Genesis chapter 4. And uh, let's jump right in. So Adam uh, loved his wife very much, Eve. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. So we've got brothers, Cain and Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So a story of two brothers both approaching God, both looking for favor, for blessing, and one of them gets favor and one of them doesn't. Now, what's going on here? Well, some people look at this passage and they see um, an ancient preference for shepherds over farmers. This is actually some way, a way that people work with this. So they look at Israel's story, for example, and they see like the two rock stars in Israel's history, Moses and David. Before Moses was leading the Israelites and before David was a the king, they were both shepherds. And so they see this sort of elevation of the shepherd task and the story here. That's one thing that people do with this when they ask, what's going on between Cain and Abel, and why does one of them get God's favor and one of them doesn't? Maybe it's about the shepherd farming thing. I don't know. 
Uh, somebody else will look at this passage and they'll say, there's a little nuance there, right? Because uh, we read that Cain brought an offering, but Abel, Abel brought fat portions from the firstlings of the, of the flock. And they see there that maybe there's something better, something deeper, something richer about Abel's offering. And so this is a story about making sure that you bring God your very best if you want to get the blessing. That's, that's, that's maybe what the story's teaching us. Like, how do we discern the difference between Cain's experience and Abel's experience? Maybe it's all about making sure that you bring the best. Here's the problem. Like, almost any reputable commentator or scholar who looks at this text says that that's all distraction, that's all noise, those are red herrings. The idea of shepherds and farmers, that you might see that there, but that's not really operative, and that's not, that's not part of what's going on in this equation. The idea that like Abel's offering is better somehow, and so God approves of it. The, the best commentators who do all of their work to make sure they're listening to the text rather than speaking into the text, right? Just letting it speak on its own before you bring your own ideas to the text. They all seem to say the same thing, which is this text doesn't give us any information about why Abel got accepted and Cain got rejected. Like, we don't get anything out of this text to answer the question, how do you get the blessing of God? What do you have to do? How do you have to perform? What do you have to bring to the table to get the blessing of God? We don't actually get that out of this text. Why? Well, because these commentators, they say the real question that's being raised here is not how do you get the blessing. The real question is what do you do when somebody else has the blessing? What do you do when one day you wake up and everything is going for somebody else and everything is against you? What do you do when you wake up and it feels like God is for them and God is not for you? What do you do when someone else has the blessing? Now, it's interesting, by the way, like, anybody ever heard of a Rorschach blot, like an ink blot? This is like a psychiatry tool, right, where you, um, you have these sort of random ink blots, and, and a therapist will show them to a patient. What do you see, right? And, of course, whatever they see in there, it, it's not about what's in there, it's about what's in here, right? It reveals more about the seer than the thing on the page. And I think the fact that we, we, we wrestle with this text trying to figure out how do we get the blessing? How do we do right? How do we moralize it? How do we get it right? How do we live like Abel and not like Cain? It tells us something about us, that we want to live in a world where we can control if we get the blessing. We want to live in a world where we can control if God likes us or not, right? Wouldn't that be comforting? Like, if, if you could just do the right things and then God is on your side. If you could do the right things and then the world will work for you, that would be really comforting. The problem is this story doesn't give us that. This story gives us what do you do when somebody else has the blessing. And just to sort of like make my point and drive it home, let me show you where the story goes next. This is uh, the end of verse 5. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Uh, by the way, this is the first time the word sin appears in the scriptures. You might, you might, if you know this story a little bit, you might think that Adam and Eve in the garden with the forbidden fruit, that the word sin would show up in that story. Because since that time, theologians have decided that that story is about something called original sin and they've done all that work. But I'm just saying, in the text, the first time the word sin shows up in the story is when there's two human beings who have different experiences of blessing and one of them can't take it. That's the first time sin shows up in the story. And God says, you have a choice right now. This is all about what are you going to do with this? 
What are you going to do when somebody else has the blessing? Um, by the way, for us, I think the volume is turned up on this like ever-present human dynamic. It's always been with us. It's been with us since the very beginning. It's in the first pages of our scripture. But I think the volume's actually turned up because about 12 years ago, somebody invented something called social media. And now not only are there people all around us who seem to have the blessing, but they post about it, right? And they have really gorgeous filters on their pics. It's all turned up. Now, I'm not saying social media is bad. I'm just saying social media tends to turn up the volume. The good, the bad, the ugly, it tends to turn it up. And for the last 12 years, we've lived in a world where we're even more confronted with this. Have you ever, have you ever been there? Have you actually been like on social media cursing somebody else's blessing? Well, let me, let me get the ball rolling on confession. So... Just the other day, I'm standing in my kitchen, and I'm looking at Instagram, and I turn to the profile of somebody on Instagram who is important to me. This is somebody I look up to, somebody I want to learn from. And so I do what I often do, which is I want to know who they're paying attention to, right? Like if I, if I read a scholar, I like to turn to the back of the book and see what sources are they using so I can get the sources they use. Well, I'm kind of doing the same thing on social, and I'm like, I wonder who this person follows because they're important to me, and I want to know who's speaking into their life. And I start flipping through the people they're following, and then this thought hits me. They're not following me. <laughs> and I thought I was kind of important to them. This is somebody I know. And I double-check, and they don't follow me. And then I notice somebody else they do follow who's not as important as me. Do you know what I mean? And in, in a microsecond, this happens to me standing in my kitchen. I start thinking negative thoughts, not about the person whose profile I'm looking at, but at the person they follow who's not as important as me. I start thinking about all the reasons that's wrong and it doesn't make sense. And don't they know, like, why, why would they pay attention? What's so great about that guy? I don't even like that guy. I know stuff about that guy that if this guy knew about that guy, they'd stop following them. And maybe I should find a subtle way to let that know, right? Like, get that out there. <laughs> Has anybody ever been there? Please tell me, because otherwise I'm all alone up here. The volume's turned up, like legitimately. Like, and, and that turn there, that's exactly what we see in the story here. I'm going to take you through it. Watch what happens, verses 8 and 9. That turn from somebody else has the blessing to I am against them because they have the blessing, right? Watch this turn right here. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. By the way, when I was growing up and my brother invited me out to the woods, it was almost never a good thing, so... <laughs> I'm paying attention, right? While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And just like that, violence enters the human story. Why? Because Cain couldn't handle it when somebody else had the blessing. Because there's this like triangle that we create, right? There's God and there's me and there's them. And I, I see what seems like God's favor in their life, things going right for them. Maybe, maybe for you the triangle isn't God because um, that's not a word that works for you or makes sense to you. Maybe it's just the world that you live in, the way things go, right? So there's that woman at work and it's like she can do no wrong. You know, like everything goes well for her and she can do no wrong and you feel like you can't do anything right for the boss, Right? 
Or like on the God front, it's like, man, you just feel like the righteous life has been easy for them to get to, and you, you just keep stumbling, you just keep striving, and you just can't put the pieces together on a holy life. And it must be nice for them because they don't seem to struggle with any of the stuff that I struggle with. What do you do when somebody else has the blessing? And what if this story is telling us, you better deal with that. You better deal with that because otherwise dark, ugly things will follow. What do you do when, um, when you feel that, that, that dark energy inside towards somebody else who has the blessing? You decide you'll, you'll slip just a subtle character assassination into a conversation. And we're smart about it, aren't we? We find ways to do it that we don't look like we're attacking them, we don't look like we're coming against them, but we just find little ways to make sure everybody knows they're not so great. Right? Little ways to come against them. We find little ways to withhold from them if we're in relationship. Just little ways to back off just a little bit because you know what? They're fine and they've got what they need and I'm the one with the deficit here so how dare they ask anything of me? Like let's, let's kind of right the wrong and level things out a little bit so we withhold a little bit or we abuse a little bit or we throw a little bit of shade. And if we're honest, we, we know where that energy is coming from, right? Because it's really hard when it feels like somebody else has the blessing. Especially if you think there's only so much blessing. Especially if you think there's only so much kindness. If God has a limited bank account on grace, if God has a limited bank account on blessing, well then anytime you see anybody else getting ahead, what does that mean? Less for you, right? Anytime you see anybody else getting ahead, that means less for us. If that's how you understand God, if that's how you understand the world, that there's only so much grace, only so much blessing, only so much generosity, and if they're tapping into it, then less for you and me, right? Uh, it's interesting, when God speaks to Cain, it's like he's saying, like, this is, this is between you and me. You do what's right and we'll be fine. This isn't about you and Abel. This is about you and me and the sin that you're about to walk into but he, he doesn't hear it that way, and he just has to go and kill his brother. Jesus tells stories that I think are meant to talk to us about envy, about what happens when somebody else has the blessing. Jesus tells stories that I think are meant to help us understand, like, maybe there's no limit to the bank account for God. Like, maybe the more somebody else gets ahead doesn't mean we have to get behind. Jesus tells stories like this. One story that Jesus tells is about the, the master of a vineyard. The, the labor manager of a vineyard, if you will. And at the beginning of the work shift, workers are brought in to work the vineyard and they're promised a fair day's wage, a denarius. This is in Matthew 20, if you want to check it out later. And uh, what we read in the story that Jesus creates here as he teaches us about the nature of God is that throughout the day, every sort of few hours, the, the, the labor manager at the vineyard, the master there, sends people out to bring more workers in. So by the end of the workday, you've got people who have worked a full workday, and people who have worked 75% of a workday, and people who have worked half of a workday, and people who have worked just like an hour or two. And then at the end, in front of everyone so that everyone can see, the master pays everyone a full day's wage. And we read in the story there that the people who showed up at the beginning of the day get angry about this. And the master says, are you envious because I'm generous? Are you envious because I'm generous? The irony is, they got their wage. They got everything they were promised. The fact that those other workers showed up later in the day didn't change anything for them. They showed up for a day's work, they put in a day's work, they got paid for a day's work. It was exactly what they were promised. 
but they got a problem with the fact that somebody else is getting more for less. Well, why does that matter? Unless you think there's like a fundamental scarcity in the world. Unless you think there's something fundamentally limited about what God has to give you when you need it. Jesus tells another story about two brothers. And anytime you hear two brothers, you should remember that Jesus' audience is going to be thinking about Cain and Abel because it's the first story of two brothers and their story, and they know these stories really well. And in this story of two brothers, Jesus says that a, a younger brother, in this case a foolish brother, says to the father, it'd be better for me if you were dead. Could I just have my half of the inheritance and go away? So surprisingly, the father gives the younger brother his half of the inheritance, and he goes away to a faraway place, and he lives it up. And he lives it up a little too much, and before he knows it, he's destitute, broke, and he's living in the slums, eating unclean food, and he has this awakening moment where he says, maybe I could go back to my father and beg to be a slave or a servant in his estate. And some of you have heard the story, so maybe you know how it goes. Jesus says that the young man goes to be back at the father's house, and the father sees him a long way off, and, and generously, with celebration, runs out to the son, puts a robe around him and a ring on his finger, welcomes him into the home, and throws a party, like a feast. And then we read about the other brother. Because, see, the older brother has been there all along, and he has, I, I picture, like, his, his arms crossed, like his hands and fists. And, and the father's throwing the party for the younger brother, and he goes outside the party, Pay attention to that, outside the party to where the older brother was. And he says, hey, why aren't you celebrating? Why aren't you in there with us? Why don't you enjoy this? And let's think about this for a second. If the younger brother has taken his entire inheritance, squandered all of it, and then the younger brother comes back and the father throws a party for the younger brother, the riches that are being spent on that party, where do they come from? The older brother's inheritance. That's all that's left, right? If you've got two brothers and a father, the estate is going to belong to those two brothers. And if the younger brother takes his half, then all that's left is the older brother's half. And he watches his riches being squandered on the younger brother who comes back. And the father says to the older brother, why, why don't you come into the party? Don't you know that all I have is yours? All I have is yours. There's plenty for you. And the story ends with the older brother outside the party looking in. The story ends with the, the guy who did everything right outside the party looking in because we don't know what to do when somebody else has the blessing, especially if you're afraid there's not much blessing, especially if you're afraid there's only so much grace, only so much kindness, just a little bit of richness from God. And if it gets squandered on them, there's not enough for you and me. So we have to grapple with this and let Jesus talk to us because I think he's saying, look, God is, is inexhaustible in his goodness and his kindness. He is saying to each of us, like, you're with me and all I have is yours. Please don't end up outside the party looking in. Please don't end up outside with your arms crossed and your fists clenched because you're convinced that you're being robbed right now. Don't you know that all I have is yours? And Jesus doesn't just tell stories about the generosity of God. Jesus doesn't just heal people to demonstrate the generosity of God. Jesus dies. Because God would give himself to us. And if God would give himself to us, then you don't have to worry about somebody else having the blessing because there's enough blessing for everyone. You can't come to the end of God. You can't come to the limit of God. You can't get to the bottom of the bucket on God. There is always more of God. And so if God will give God's self to us, then you don't have to worry about somebody else having the blessing. 
See, like every time you run into a moment where it feels like somebody else has the wind at their back, when it feels like the, the favor is for somebody else, we're stumbling into questions about the nature of God and the universe and the reality that we live in and whether we think there's really enough for everyone. Uh, so we've got to grapple with this. What do you do when somebody else has the blessing? It's ironic, by the way, that um, Cain asks a very good question in response to God. Uh, let me... Uh, Revisit this for a sec. When Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field, and they're out there and he killed him. And then at the end of verse 9, after God says, where's your brother? Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And that's a really good question, right? The problem is, the answer he wanted was no, but the answer is yes. (laughs) Like, read the Bible for a minute, and you'll find out over and over and over and over again, are you your brother's keeper? You better believe it. But where do we find the, the generosity, the energy to, to live into that, to care for our brothers and sisters? Well, maybe it's if you spend a little bit of time asking yourself, where have you believed there's not enough for you? And isn't that a lie? Where have you believed there's not enough grace for you? And how does that have anything to do with what you see in Jesus? Where do you believe that God is against you? How does that have anything to do with what you see in Jesus? Back to the social media stuff for a little bit. It's interesting. Um, there's been a bunch of studies on the effect of social media on our psyche. Lots and lots of data that you can find out there. Remember, we're like 12 years into a fundamentally new human phenomenon. Is that crazy, by the way? I think Facebook came to my college in 05. That's just 12 years ago, right? And now it's everything and everywhere. So there's all this data on it, and it's interesting. There's a pile of studies that test people. They check their, how they would rate their mood, their attitude, their feelings before they spend like two hours on social media, and then they check in afterwards. And there's all these studies that show that a couple of hours on social media will take your happiness level and drag it down dramatically. There's, that, there's real data on this, that you spend much time on social media and you will end up less happy than you were before you were on social media. Watch this, though. There's another pile of studies that show that if you spend a couple of hours on social media, you end up much happier. You can, you can read about this. The New Yorker did a big piece on this. So they asked themselves, these researchers, they put all these studies side by side and they try to drill down on the actual behavior that's happening. And here's what they found out. The lurkers, the ones who don't interact, who don't like, who don't comment, who don't celebrate with, who don't engage, who just look at picture after picture, post after post, and see everybody else's blessed, beautiful life, they're the ones who end up depressed at the end. But if you get on there and you like a post, If you get on there and you comment on somebody's post, not negative nonsense, right, but like you celebrate with them, they put a picture of their kid and you say, what a beautiful kid. You know what happens? It's that kind of engagement that takes your attitude up like 20 percentage points. Like maybe the difference between people who realize they're here to keep one another and those who think they're here to bring one another down. Like like that maybe this actually like flows in a cycle, you know, like, If you believe there is enough blessing for everyone, then you might be the kind of person who cares for your brother, who cares for your sister, who celebrates with your brother, who celebrates with your sister, even if you're not having a great day. If you believe there's enough blessing for everyone, you might choose to become your brother's keeper, right? But it's also interesting that apparently just acting like your brother's keeper can help you become the kind of person who believes there's enough blessing for everyone. Like you can start at either side of the equation, Start by blessing, start by celebrating, start by moving toward other people and the good things that are happening for them. And you may discover there's enough blessing for everyone. 
or start by worshiping the God who has blessing for everyone, by meditating on Christ who dies and reveals the generosity of God, and you might feel yourself moving toward other people to become their keeper. In fact, you might actually discover that a blessing for them is a blessing for you because it's all connected. And then you might start losing sleep, not over whether you've got the blessing, but over your brothers and sisters who don't. Because God has enough generosity for everyone. God has enough blessing for everyone. But the way our world is arranged right now, not everybody has enough blessing, right? The way our world is arranged right now, some people have a lot more going for them than others. And you may discover that this is inviting you into a place where you can actually care about the fact that other people don't have the blessings they need. And what a larger, more beautiful, more meaningful life to spend it obsessing over our brothers and sisters and what they need than a life where we spend ourselves obsessing over what we don't have. That's taking us out of like a narcissistic black hole to a life of purpose, to a life of meaning in the world. What do you do when somebody else has the blessing? You celebrate, man. What do you do when they don't have the blessing? You open your eyes and you figure out how you can fix it. What do you do when you feel like you don't have the blessing? At the risk of sounding like a preacher right now, (laughs) pay attention to Jesus. Let him teach you. Watch him go to the cross. Ask yourself, what kind of generous God gives himself? Not just gifts, doesn't just give gifts. What kind of generous God gives himself? At the end of this uh, incident with Cain and Abel, God comes to Cain and he says, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. A quick time out. Interesting. The Hebrew word for punishment is also the Hebrew word for sin. Like this, this sentence could be translated either my punishment is too great for me to bear or my sin is too great for me to bear. I remember that moment when I just walloped my brother for no reason except for all the reasons that brothers always want to kill their brothers. All the pent-up angst of five or six years of being the little runt in the family and whatever little snide things he'd done to me over the years. And I remember like right after I do it, and my brother's crying and he's on the ground. And I immediately think, what have I done? What a, why, am I, why am I like this? What a jerk. Why did I do that? Have you ever been there? As soon as you do the thing, you step back from it. And it's like my sin is too great for me to bear. I'm confronted with what I am right now, with what I've done right now, and I don't like it. And you won't like it if you give yourself over to these dark impulses every time somebody else has the blessing, right? So, um, my punishment or my sin is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Now listen, remember, imagine you're Cain and this whole time you've been thinking, why is God against me? Why does God like my brother and not me? Why does the world work for him and not for me, right? The whole time you're sort of thinking that about God. Listen here. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is Cain who seems to believe that God is against him in every way, who seems to think that God is just prejudiced against him, but he spends the rest of his life with a mark of protection on his head. 
He spends the rest of his life with a sign on his life that tells anyone who sees him, God has his back. Isn't that fascinating? That's, that's, that's the rest of Cain's story, that he spends the rest of his life with God's protection all over him. It just like makes me go back to that early point in the story, and I, I, think, I think it's like God is saying, Cain, this wasn't about me being against you. Now, I don't know why God looked on favor with, a, with favor on Abel's offering and, and didn't do so with Cain's. I don't know why. None of us knows. It's not in the text. Perhaps God has some motives, some reasons, some purposes that we can't fully understand. But I wonder if God is saying, I was never against you. I was never picking favorites, man. Yet there was some kind of work that needed to happen, something that needed to be opened up inside you, some darkness you needed to confront. And now you see it for what it is. And now that we've walked through that together, there's some consequences for what's happened. But I will protect you because I was never against you. There's blessing enough for everyone. So today we thought um, coming to Jesus' table would be really appropriate. Jesus was constantly um, inviting people to his table who had lots of reasons to believe there was no room for them in the house of God, no blessing for them coming from God's hand. It's like a fundamentally generous place that Jesus kept inviting people to, all the wrong kinds of people, again and again saying, come, eat with me. And as we come to the table today, I can't help but think of that image of closed fists, I think a lot of us are like moving through the world like that. I think a lot of us um, come toward God like that. I think some of us in some subtle or not so subtle way, we come against one another with fists, right? Like Cain in the field with Abel. We gotta bring them down a notch because the alternative to a closed fist is an open hand, which presents the terrifying possibility that it will be empty, right? The terrifying possibility that you will open your hand and there will be no blessing to fill it. But it's in that very vulnerable place that God wants to meet us at the table today. So um, I'll talk us through this, and then I'll serve those who will serve you, and then we'll open the table for anyone who wants to be at the table with Jesus. That's, that's how we define it. Anybody who wants to be at the table with Jesus is welcome at the table with Jesus. So um, uh, the way we'll do this today is, um, in a little bit after I serve those who are serving you, we'll have stations at each of the corners, and there'll be a couple of people in each corner. And you can go to wherever you want if you'd like to come to the table. And, um, and we want to be really thoughtful about this because it's, about, it's not about taking what's ours. It's about receiving the gift, right? So when you come forward, um, you can simply just hold your hand open. You don't have to take the bread. You don't have to make anything happen. You can just walk forward and hold your hand open. And somebody will look at you and remind you, the body of Christ broken for you. And they'll place that bread in your hand. And you can hold on to it. Don't eat it yet. And then uh, you'll kind of take a step over to the right and somebody will hold out a cup. And they'll remind you, the blood of Christ shed for you. And then you can take that bread out of your hand, you can dip it in the cup, and you can take that and eat as you go back to your seat. And you can remember the generosity of God. Because if God would give himself to us, then surely there's enough blessing to go around. Right? Um, Let me remind you, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his friends there. And these are the friends who had heard him tell the stories about the workers in the vineyard and the two brothers and the generous father. And then he looked at them knowing that his own life would be the generosity of God right in front of their eyes. And so he took a loaf of bread and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. 
And then he took a cup. And he said, this represents the promise of a new covenant. Covenant's a strong word, you guys. Covenant is not like on a good day when I'm feeling like it. Covenant is through thick and thin, no matter what comes our way, I am with you and I love you. And he held out the cup and he said, take and drink and remember. And so that's what we'll do today with the bread and the cup. Let me uh, invite those who are going to serve you to come on forward. And I'll begin by serving them. And um, even as we just sort of get ready here, maybe you could ask yourself, like, where in your life recently have you been afraid that somebody else has the blessing? Where has a little bit of envy or resentment made its way into your heart? Where has some image of God or reality been painted so that it's scarce? There's not much goodness, not much blessing. Is there any way that you find yourself a little afraid to open your hand in your life, in your heart, in your spirit? And today, would it be a really brave and beautiful thing for you to open your hand and let God fill it with the gift of his son? It's the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you, Mike.